Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of, bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Al Capone. Now let's get started with our story about Al Capone. On the morning of February 14, 1929, Valentine's Day, individuals affiliated with Chicago's Northside Gang, a criminal entity headed by George Bugs Moran, assembled in an office and garage at 2122 North Clark Street, while lettering on the blacked-out front window identified this location as the SMC Cartage Company. It was, in fact, a headquarters where Moran and his Confederates accepted deliveries of illegal alcohol and periodically met to plan and discuss various illicit and violent schemes to generate cash and to vigorously confront their chief gangster opposition, the Chicago Outfit, a Southside-based group of criminals led by Al Capone. Throughout the 20s, these two rival organizations engaged in shootouts, leaving prominent members of each gang either seriously wounded or dead. As members of the Moran gang entered the garage, they were unaware of an observer in a rented room across the street who thought he recognized one of these men as Bugs Moran himself. This lookout forwarded information about Moran's presence that eventually made its way to the Circus Cafe, where a hand-picked crew of Capone assassins waited. In a matter of minutes, these men then used a 1927 Cadillac to pull up in front of 2122 North Clark. At least two of these individuals were disguised as Chicago policemen, and when they entered the SMC Cartage building and ordered all seven men present to line up and face a wall of the garage, the Moran contingent did so, thinking that they were about to be arrested on a minor charge or possibly shaken down for a cash payoff. Instead, two other men then entered carrying Thompson submachine guns as the two disguised cops also pulled out sawed-off shotguns. Immediately, the hit squad blasted away, killing six of the hoodlums and leaving a seventh notorious Moran hitman, Frank Gusenberg, mortally wounded. Although Al Capone was visibly ensconced thousands of miles away in his Palm Island, Miami, Florida vacation home, both the Chicago municipal hierarchy and the public shared the sentiment expressed publicly by Bugs Moran after the slaughter. Although identified by the Capone lookout, Moran was actually running late and was not present when the killings occurred. However, upon hearing about what was eventually dubbed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, he told journalists, quote, only Capone kills like that, unquote. No one, including Al Capone or any of his affiliated gang members, was ever prosecuted for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, a crime that remains officially unsolved. Capone literally eliminated almost all of the leadership of the Northside gang, and what remained 
including Moran, who was sufficiently intimidated enough to essentially disappear as a viable threat to the outfit. But this short-term development also set in motion a chain of events that eventually toppled Al Capone from his perch as America's most powerful criminal. Public disgust at a previously unseen level of violence changed Capone's image from that of just another lovable prohibition rogue involved in the rough-and-tumble world of widespread Chicago crime and corruption to that of a ruthless and vicious killer. It also prompted the federal government to recognize that local law enforcement in Chicago was either too corrupt or too overmatched to deal with the man officially identified by the Chicago Crime Commission as public enemy number one. Nevertheless, it would take several years to neutralize the power of a man who had methodically clawed his way to the top of the heap of America's criminal underworld. Although subsequently recognized as one of the most prominent criminals in American history, Al Capone came from a typically humble immigrant background. In 1894, his parents emigrated to the U.S. from the vicinity of Naples, Italy. This married couple, Gabrielle and Teresina Teresa Capone, already had two children, and a third was born shortly after their arrival at Ellis Island. The Capone family, like many of their Italian immigrant counterparts, settled in Brooklyn, renting a cold-water tenement with no indoor plumbing in the rough Red Hook section. On January 17, 1899, Alphonse Gabriel Capone became the fourth child born into this family and the second Native American, including the two born in Italy. The Capone family later consisted of nine children, eight surviving into adulthood. Al's father was a barber by trade, eventually moving the family to a better home that also contained his shop. His father, unlike his mother, was literate and spoke English. Although relatively poor, the Capones seemed like just another ordinary, hard-working couple putting their children through school and looking to make their way in the new world. There was nothing to indicate mental instability or dysfunction that eventually produced a remarkably antisocial progeny. Like most immigrant communities, the sons and daughters of newly arrived Italian parents were expected to work as opposed to accessing higher education. For Al Capone, this was especially true. His exit from the public school system at an early age, a predictable outcome. Forced to repeat sixth grade, mostly as a result of truancy, Capone also disliked the occasional corporal punishment he received that was commonplace in New York City public schools in the early 20th century. Finally, after taking exception to a teacher's scolding, Capone talked back, earning himself a slap across the face. When the 14-year-old hit the teacher in response, he was taken to the principal, who administered a much more thorough beating and an expulsion. That was the end of Al Capone's formal education. By then, the Capone family lived on Garfield Place, a quiet, perfectly respectable Brooklyn address. Only blocks away at Union Street and 4th Avenue, a nondescript second-story commercial operation was identified with a sign that read simply, The John Torrio Association. From a young age, Donato Johnny Torrio was focused on organizing criminal activities involving gambling and loan sharking 
that he operated from behind a legitimate business, a neighborhood pool hall. Although not flamboyant, Torrio, born in Monte Peloso, Italy, was a sharp operator who allied himself with Manhattan's Five Points Gang and quickly began to branch out into more malevolent criminal activity involving prostitution, extortion, and even narcotics. Torrio also kept a close eye on the neighborhood, always eager to find teenagers that he could depend on to run errands and generally handle tasks without asking too many questions. Although Al Capone suffered through a succession of menial jobs after he dropped out of school, he ingratiated himself with Torrio, who in turn recommended Capone to another Brooklyn mobster, Frankie Yale. Born in Longobuco, Italy, as Francesco Uale, Yale ran several businesses involving legitimate consumer staples like ice, tobacco, and even laundries. His success revolved around the concepts of monopoly and extortion. If you were in certain businesses in Yale's sphere of influence, you bought your stock from him or else. Ice, a necessity in pre-refrigerated America, was sold along routes assigned by Yale, his underlings also collecting a regular cut of the proceeds. If you were employed in a commercial laundry in the same area, you belonged to a union administered by Yale that collected dues from all members and forcefully discouraged any legitimate unions from attempting to organize these same employees. The crown jewel of Yale's operation was the Harvard Inn, a Coney Island bar and dance hall located in the popular Brooklyn Entertainment District near the Atlantic Ocean. Although named after Harvard, the location was anything but sophisticated, and Yale was forever in need of employees tough enough to deal with the occasional guest who overindulged or started brawling with other customers. When he asked Torrio if he knew of anyone who could fill the position of bartender-slash-bouncer, Torrio suggested 18-year-old Al Capone. Capone proved to be ideal for the job, a hard worker, well-liked by the customers. Yale sat in the rear of the establishment, unobserved as he conducted business with any number of associates and supplicants. Unfortunately, about a year into the job, Al Capone overstepped in a manner that had permanent consequences. Waiting on a young couple, he complimented the female guest on her attractive figure in a provocatively crude manner that did not sit well with her companion, who was in fact her older brother. Incensed, the patron punched Capone, probably an overreaction, as Al, at five foot eleven, 210 pounds, easily shrugged off this aggression and angrily moved towards his assailant, intent on meeting out some punishment of his own. Now fearful, the young customer, a tough kid from the neighborhood named Frank Galluccio, produced a stiletto. At five foot six and 150 pounds, Galluccio figured he better strike first, as he probably wouldn't get a second chance. He went to work on Capone's face, carving him up badly before Frank and his sister fled into the night. Al was seriously slashed three times, the amount of blood on his face and the floor, a major distraction that allowed his assailants escape. The wounds would heal, but they left permanent deep scars that eventually led to one of the most infamous nicknames in all of the underworld, Scarface. But that was years down the road. In the meantime, Capone made it clear that he was looking for Galluccio 
with the full backing of Frankie Yale, and Galuccio was alarmed and connected enough to be able to plead his case before two Manhattan gangland heavyweights, Joe the Boss Masseria and one Salvatore Lucania, eventually better known as Lucky Luciano. Both agreed with a typically old-world sensibility that such a degrading comment in front of a man's sister was out of line, and Luciano personally participated in a sit-down with Capone, Yale, and Galluccio. In this after-hours meeting at the Harvard Inn, Luciano is said to have decreed that Galluccio should formally apologize, but that was the end of the matter, and that should Capone pursue further revenge, he would be punished severely and permanently. Probably displeased, Capone grudgingly and wisely accepted this outcome. It didn't stunt his development as one of Frankie Yale's most menacing enforcers and collectors. Within months, by age 19, Capone had already killed a loan-sharking customer of Yale's who refused to pay a substantial debt. In his late teens, Al Capone also encountered another harsh reality of the mean streets of Brooklyn, venereal disease. In such an economically deprived environment, prostitution was rife, informally on the streets, or more organized in the brothels operated by the likes of Johnny Torrio. Undoubtedly, while still a teenager, Capone contracted syphilis after consorting with a prostitute. Even worse, he ignored the initial symptoms after they disappeared. The disease, although treatable even in the early 20s, remained dormant but eventually returned with dire consequences for Capone's physical and mental well-being. But, like most criminals of the day, Capone also pursued relationships that were typically mundane. Coming from a large Italian family, it was expected that Al, already pushing 20, would find a nice girl and start raising a family of his own. He began to court a woman by the name of Mary Coglin, much to the dismay of the girl's middle-class Irish parents. Mary, nicknamed May, worked at a department store her father employed as a railroad clerk. Although relationships with Italian men were frowned upon within the Irish immigrant community, they occurred with increasing frequency, as Irish males typically held off on marriage until their late 20s, unlike Italians who tended to marry at a much earlier age. In the summer of 1918, Capone had another strong motivation to get married, avoiding the draft that might send him overseas to fight in World War I. Perhaps this was the impetus to propel this relationship forward, May quickly becoming pregnant with Capone's child, a development that made the couple's marriage a certainty, which occurred on December 30, 1918 their son, only three and a half weeks old. Surprisingly, and possibly based on his newly more respectable status as a husband and father, Capone relocated to Baltimore, where he found work as a bookkeeper for a construction firm run by an Italian-American. He remained in Baltimore until November of 1920, when his father, aged 55, dropped dead in a neighborhood pool hall. Perhaps Al Capone felt that he no longer had to adhere to the old-world mores that his father's generation followed. After returning to Brooklyn for his father's funeral, he abruptly gave notice to his Baltimore employer, explaining that he had a great opportunity in Chicago. This change was prompted by Johnny Torrio, by now himself relocated to Chicago, and the brains behind the racketeering organization 
operated by James Big Jim Colosimo, a rags-to-riches gangster and restaurateur who covertly ran a huge vice operation that dealt especially in brothels and prostitution. His Colosimo's Cafe was one of the most popular and opulent restaurants in the city, and Colosimo, sporting diamonds, wearing a white suit, tall and certainly carrying more than a few extra pounds, was a literally larger-than-life figure. Torrio was the perfectly reserved and concealed manager who paid attention to -to day-to-day operations, while Colosimo spent most of his time partying and taking advantage of his proximity to a large stable of obliging females. Although Colosimo specifically installed Torrio because the New Yorker was not ambitiously dangerous, eventually Torrio became secretly unhappy over Big Jim's aversion to getting involved in the illegal trade in alcohol prompted by prohibition. Torrio, like the majority of gangsters in America, recognized bootlegging as a fantastically lucrative opportunity, but Colosimo was adamant in not wanting to participate, feeling that he was making a fortune without potentially exposing himself to inevitable prosecution by federal entities. In March of 1920, Big Jim further stirred the pot by divorcing his longtime wife, a brothel madam, and business partner, and marrying his much younger mistress. This seems to have been a final straw, within six weeks, Colosimo was shot to death in the lobby of his cafe. The gunman was never identified, but Frankie Yale and Al Capone are two names that are frequently mentioned, especially after Johnny Torrio assumed the reins of Big Jim's operation. Most likely, it was not Capone who was responsible for the Colosimo hit, as he did not officially arrive in Chicago until 1921. By that time, Johnny Torrio was in charge of thousands of brothels, speakeasies, and gambling dens, while his gross from all of the syndicated activity was well over $10 million. His expenses were also high, with approximately 800 employees, not to mention a vast payroll devoted to the police, relevant city aldermen, and even the mayor's office. Torrio needed all of the reliable help he could get to oversee this unique business operation, and he persuaded Al Capone to relocate and join this flourishing syndicate. Shortly thereafter, Al persuaded his brother Ralph to go to work for Torrio as well. Initially, Both brothers managed a string of small neighborhood brothels, and Torrio must have been pleased with Al's management skills, quickly promoting him to run Torrio's Four Deuces Cafe, an operation that combined a bar, brothel, horse racing parlor, casino-style gambling, and offices for management to keep an eye on the operation, all under one roof. Torrio also paid Capone with a profit percentage as opposed to a salary to keep his young protege both hungry and loyal. By mid-1922, Al Capone was earning enough money to move his wife, son, widowed mother, and even some of his still teenage siblings to Chicago. He installed these members of the Capone clan in a Southside suburban house, far from the areas in Chicago that generated his income. While he occasionally holed up elsewhere, he would own this home for the rest of his time as a Chicago resident. And initially, Al's life in Chicago in the early 20s was relatively peaceful, with the various criminal factions respecting each other's territories, assuming that there was a big enough racketeering pie for everybody to prosper. 
Chicago and America in the early 20s was governed by some of the most corrupt agencies in its history. President Warren Harding, a bumbling, weak figurehead at the top of a self-dealing government involved in such scandals as Teapot Dome and the Veterans Bureau, Harding destined to rank as one of the worst presidents in U.S. history. Illinois Governor Len Small was indicted in 1921 for stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars while state treasurer and the mayor of Chicago. William Big Bill Thompson was serving the second of his eventual three mayoral terms using the office as a personal piggy bank of campaign contributions, kickbacks, and bribery. After his final term of office concluded in 1931, the Chicago Tribune commented, quote, for Chicago, Thompson has meant filth, corruption, obscenity, idiocy, and bankruptcy. He has given the city an international reputation for moronic buffoonery, barbaric crime, triumphant hoodlamism, unchecked graft, and a dejected citizenship, unquote. It was in this Chicago environment that Torrio and Al Capone flourished with little municipal adversity. This relative tranquility was interrupted by the Chicago mayoral election of 1923, which elected the reform-minded William Deaver, who vowed to get rid of underworld criminal influence. Attempting to stay one step ahead of any law enforcement crusade, Johnny Torrio decided that it might be wise to move his headquarters to the nearby town of Cicero, Illinois a mostly industrial municipality with a small number of residents and a government that could be easily corrupted and manipulated. He assigned Al Capone the job of not only transplanting speakeasies, gambling dens, and brothels from Chicago, but also with the subversion of the Cicero town government. By now, Capone was working closely with Ralph as well as another brother, Frank Capone. Smoother and less volatile than Al, Frank Capone was an intermediary between the outfit and Cicero city government. By the mayoral election of April 1, 1924, Cicero was firmly in the pocket of Torrio's gang. Local outrage and even rival gangs who did not like Torrio siphoning off Chicago rackets to a nearby town united behind Democratic candidates in an attempt to eliminate the outfit's Cicero dominance. On Election Day, unprecedented Cook County violence took place throughout Cicero, most of it inflicted by individuals affiliated with the Torrio gang. Heavily armed mobsters descended on polling locations, intimidating and preventing anyone who they deemed unsympathetic to their Republican slate of candidates. Democratic campaign workers were kidnapped and transported to basements in Chicago, where they were beaten and detained until well after the polls closed. The situation was so blatantly out of control that by late afternoon, a Cook County judge deputized over 70 Chicago police and detectives and sent them to Cicero to restore order. By then, it was too late to remedy a stolen election, which Torrio's Republican candidates won. But there was at least one violent confrontation in which a carload of outfit gang members, including Frank Capone, became involved in a shooting incident with several Chicago detectives. Even today, whether the police opened fire without provocation or were responding to Frank Capone and his associates drawing their weapons is in dispute. Capone was shot dead in the street. The car's other occupants fled. 
Despite his brother's spectacular funeral, Al Capone still remained a modest figure in the Chicago underworld. His notoriety increased after an incident involving brazenly inflicted violence in public. On May 8, 1924, Jake Guzik, a prominent member of the outfit, was accosted on a Chicago street by a small-time 28-year-old criminal named Joe Howard. When Guzik, a small, chubby individual named Greasy Thumb, who was the opposite of physically intimidating, refused to lend Howard money. Howard slapped and kicked him to the ground, adding some anti-Semitic slurs for good measure. Guzik's connection with Cook County political figures and his back-office financial skills had earned him the loyalty of both Torrio and Capone. And when Guzik made his way to the Four Deuces and told Al Capone about Howard's aggression, Capone immediately decided to respond. Both Capone and Guzik quickly found Howard in a bar just a few blocks from where the altercation occurred. First, Al accosted the 28-year-old verbally, but Guzik's assailant showed no contrition and most likely intoxicated, called Capone an ethnic slur, as well as a pimp. Without hesitating, Al Capone pulled a pistol out of his jacket, grabbed Howard firmly by the shoulder, pressed the handgun to his face, and emptied the pistol into his head. When he was finished, the mobster merely let go, and Joe Howard flopped dead to the floor of the saloon. He and Guzik, without another word, then brusquely walked out of the barroom. Although police quickly determined that Capone was Howard's killer, Chicago prosecutor William McSwiggan was unable to get an indictment when any of the witnesses wisely refused to testify. However, the story was all over the Chicago newspapers, headlines using both Capone's actual name and his alias, Al Brown. If nothing else, the murder cemented Capone's reputation as a fearsome and violent criminal. He spent much of his time at the Hawthorne Inn, the nerve center for Cicero's now vast network of hundreds of outfit-controlled bars, brothels, and gambling establishments. His wife and son ensconced in suburbia, Capone rarely made it home to the family staying at the inn or any number of fortified residences in the neighborhood, his dutiful wife never questioning this arrangement, or anything else, for that matter. Had she asked, Capone probably would have told her that it was too dangerous for him to openly spend a great deal of time at their residence, and in fact, in Chicago, in 1924, that was becoming a reality. The uneasy truce that Johnny Torrio was able to negotiate to satisfy the various factions of Chicago's criminal underworld was about to fracture brutally, precipitating a lengthy and vicious civil war between those affiliated with Northsiders like Dean O'Banion, Jaime Weiss, and George Bugs Moran, and the Torrio Capone's Southside and Cicero outfit. Part of Torrio's ability to keep the peace was to subdivide various areas of Chicago and assign these areas to the various affiliated subgroups who agreed to do business in their assigned areas, Eventually, Dean O'Banion, the preeminent Northside hoodlum, began to resent the encroachment and competition from a group of Sicilian brothers known as the Jennas. These six brothers dominated organized crime in Chicago's Little Italy section and specialized in marketing homebrewed rot-gut alcohol that they sold at prices which undercut other bootleggers. O'Banion responded by occasionally hijacking shipments of illegal alcohol and really turned up the rancor when he refused to forgive a large debt 
incurred in a mob casino by one of the Jenna brothers, the Cicero gambling operation, a Torrio O'Banion partnership. O'Banion, not satisfied with this level of hostility, really thumbed his nose directly at the outfit by implementing a complicated swindle of Johnny Torrio himself. During a meeting with both Torrio and Al Capone at the Hawthorne Inn, O'Banion claimed that he was tired of dealing with the pressures of mob life, feared that he would be killed by the Jennas, and wanted to just leave it all behind and move to Colorado. Probably privately overjoyed that their main criminal rival was considering getting out of town, the two men readily agreed to buy O'Banion's interest in a clandestine beer-producing operation they owned in a partnership for $500,000, But O'Banion had gotten a tip that the Sieben Brewery, the business in question, was going to be raided on a specific date, and not by Chicago police who could be bought off, but by agents of the federal government working on behalf of the U.S. attorney with the full blessing of the crime-crusading Mayor Deaver. Even worse, O'Banion set up a final delivery for the night of May 19th, ensuring that both he and Torrio were on the premises. This may have helped O'Banion's claim that he knew nothing about the bust, but the arrest of Torrio, who already had a prohibition violation conviction on his record, was no small matter. The gang leader eventually got a nine-month jail sentence and a $5,000 fine on top of the 500 k that he never got back from O'Banion. Warned by his gang buddies to stop provoking Torrio, O'Banion famously responded, To hell with the Sicilians, evincing a bravado that was recklessly foolhardy. Because O'Banion was a heavyweight gangland figure with strong connections, the outfit tread carefully, but methodically forward. O'Banion also had a lucrative florist business that focused especially on the elaborate floral designs necessitated by any number of gangland deaths in Chicago. The shop was directly across from the Holy Name Cathedral, an immense downtown Chicago Catholic church and location that generated even more business. O'Banion actually supervised the business personally and was usually on the premises. On November 10, 1924, Three men entered the store, ostensibly to pick up a sizable order. Exactly who these men were has always been the subject of rumor, but the best guess revolves around Frankie Yale, who O'Banion would not have suspected, and two other men, John Scalise and Albert Anselmi, two individuals who eventually became the most feared hitmen in the outfit, but at that time were unknown, recent emigres from Sicily. While Frankie Yale firmly shook hands with O'Banion, both Scalise and Anselmi shot him in the chest, throat, and administered a final coup de grace to the head. Other employees in the rear of the store fled out the back. O'Banion's funeral was as lavish as any Chicago had ever seen, the funeral procession to the cemetery a mile long. Capone and Torrio and many other enemies were in attendance, for them the occasion as much of a celebration as anything else. They presumed that O'Banion's north side territory would now be theirs to keep. Unfortunately for the outfit, several of O'Banion's associates had other ideas, and they were also angry about the method used to murder one of Chicago's most powerful criminals, the likes of which had not been seen since the murder of Big Jim Colosimo. And even that was an internal power struggle within the outfit. Henry Jaime Weiss initially became the de facto leader of the Northsiders, opposed to Torrio and Capone. 
Although many thought Weiss was Jewish, his parents anglicized their name from Wojciechowski when they came to America from Poland. Two of his more powerful cronies were George Bugs Moran, the nickname stemming from his famously hot temper, and one Ludvico D'Ambrosio, who adopted the more intimidating alias of Vincent Schemer Drucci. With the outfit seemingly declaring war with the brazen murder of Dean O'Banion, this trio immediately began to implement their own violent plan to retaliate against both Torrio, Capone, and any associated individuals. Johnny Torrio prudently figured that getting out of town might be wise, as it was clear he would be on any list of individuals that the Northsiders targeted for violence. He traveled to various places, including Hot Springs, Arkansas, and Cuba, and laid low, leaving most of the responsibility for running his criminal enterprise to Al Capone. Jaime Weiss then focused his attention on the latter target in a manner that was even for Chicago a violent novelty. Ironically purchased while he was on an extended visit to Colorado, Dean O'Banion was the first Chicago criminal to recognize the potential of the Thompson submachine gun in conducting gang warfare. The gun was invented in 1916, the result of the First World War, but it never really caught on, and subsequent peacetime efforts to sell the weapon to police departments were met with failure. However, the relatively lightweight automatic that could fire numerous bullets from a round drum was perfect for shooting up buildings and automobiles, accuracy no longer necessary for the rapid fire of dozens of bullets sprayed in the general direction of a target. Although O'Banion didn't live long enough to ever use the gun itself, in January of 1925, Weiss, Drucci, and Moran did use a submachine gun in an attempt to kill Al Capone. The gangster traveled around Chicago in a large, recognizable Cadillac, figuring his bodyguards would handle any typical attack. This particular attempt failed. The parked limousine-sized car containing only Capone's chauffeur and his bodyguards Al safely inside a nearby restaurant. But the incident impressed the outfit enough to secure their own Thompsons, a development that eventually became relevant to Jaime Weiss in a major way. Johnny Torrio, facing his upcoming trial in the Sieben Brewery case, was forced to return to Chicago days after this attack in mid-January. Soon afterwards, Bugs Moran and Jaime Weiss personally followed Torrio and his wife home from a downtown shopping outing. When their driver dropped the couple off at their apartment residence, Weiss and Moran pounced. Using a sawed-off shotgun, Weiss wounded and incapacitated Torrio, who fell down in the street, his wife in the background screaming with terror. Moran also grazed Torrio with a pistol, and standing over the still-conscious, prostrate gang boss, prepared to shoot him, execution style. But, either due to a delivery truck that drove by the scene, or most likely a jammed or empty weapon, Bugs couldn't finish the job. Torrio survived four bullet wounds, but the attack forced him into a life-altering decision. After spending four weeks in a hospital and pleading guilty to the brewery charge, Torrio began a nine-month sentence in a local county jail. While still incarcerated, he summoned Capone and told him that he was through and that Al should take over the outfit. Torrio's next conviction for violating prohibition would send him to jail for a lengthy sentence, and as the head of the outfit, the Northsiders would relentlessly attempt to avenge the death of O'Banion until they succeeded. 
Upon his release from jail, Torrio and his wife headed for Italy, where they remained for several years until quietly returning to New York City and Torrio's role as a background underworld consigliere to the mafia. While Bugs Moran and company failed to seriously threaten Al Capone during 1925, they were more successful in minimizing the notorious Jenna brothers. On May 26th, while riding in a car on a Chicago street, Angelo Jenna crashed into a lamppost and died in the hospital after being severely wounded by a group of Northsiders. His brother Mike died after a shootout with police that was prompted by an earlier gunfight with the Weiss-Moran mob, two police detectives also dying after this encounter. On July 8th, after being lured to a meeting by a former associate now secretly involved with the Northsiders, Anthony Jenna was fatally wounded by gunmen, the third member of this crime family killed in approximately six weeks. The three remaining Jennas wisely decided to retire from gangland Chicago and relocated to Sicily. Their days as prominent criminals ended. Al Capone certainly noticed the increase in violence and danger, rarely ever returning to his suburban home and going months without seeing his family. He dutifully called every day, usually rising at noon in his hotel suite after an evening of drinking, carousing with associates and mistresses in various fortified locations throughout Cicero. Although Capone was a heavy drinker, he usually imbibed late at night behind the fortified walls of his hotel suites or private residences in the company of his brother Ralph and a few trusted bodyguards. Absent from any domestic life, his wife, sister, and mother all lived under the same roof, barely tolerating each other. May Capone focused mainly on trying to raise her only child, perpetually sickly son Albert, nicknamed Sonny. In late 1925, Sonny Capone was treated for a serious mastoid infection, undergoing an operation in New York. He would have issues with hearing for most of his life. His mother's treatment for syphilis at the Mayo Clinic, also in late 1925, indicated that certainly she had contracted the disease and may have passed it on to her son. There was no record of Al Capone receiving treatment for this ailment, and certainly no public or even private discussion of his condition. As the 20s progressed, the Chicago Beer Wars, as they were known, only intensified. The vacuum left by the Jenna brothers was filled by another Sicilian, Giuseppe Aiello, who became jealous of Capone's success and Capone manipulating the appointment of associate Antonio Lombardo as head of the Unione Siciliana, a business association now completely infiltrated by mobsters. Aiello aligned himself with Bugs Moran, further complicating the city's criminal environment. Politically, the city, never really behind prohibition, grew tired of reformer Mayor William Deaver's attempt to clean up the rackets, both unpopular with many and a complete failure as liquor was sold fairly openly throughout Chicago and its outskirts. Incredibly, former Mayor Big Bill Thompson was re-elected in 1927, a development which launched an anything-goes atmosphere that became civically pervasive. By then, Capone had eliminated two of his major rivals. On October 11, 1926, Jaime Weiss was machine-gunned to death in broad daylight in the vicinity of Dean O'Banion's former flower shop. And on April 4, 1927, schemer Drucci was shot to death, not by a gangster, but while in custody in an altercation with a hot-headed 
police detective. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Al Capone. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Al Capone, His Life, Legacy, and Legend by Deirdre Bear. Capone, The Man and the Era by Lawrence Burgreen. And The St. Valentine's Day Massacre by William J. Helmer. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.